0: Hello and welcome to the Tech Narratives podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. This is episode 71, the episode for Thursday, October 5th. I have 10 items that I've written about on the site today for subscribers, and then I will have five items at the end in the roundup as well. We'll kick things off today with a story about Netflix. This is reported by Mashable. I have a feeling Jason Abrazeez at Mashable I had a heads up on this a while back, but didn't actually end up reporting it until today. Uh, because he uh, did a previous piece a week or two ago about the potential for Netflix price increases. Uh, At the time, my take was it seemed pretty unlikely Netflix just made price increases late last year, or at least it finally uh, finished implementing the previous round of price increases, but he had no immediate pressure to increase prices again. And yet it is doing so, and it's worth thinking about why that is. Last time around, Netflix argued this was to help cover the costs of all its additional investment in content, But the reality is at the time, its cost per subscriber per month in the U.S. was actually going down uh, over time rather than up. So that that really didn't hold water. This is really about continuing to expand U.S. streaming margins. In the past year or so, content costs or total costs, most of which are content per subscriber, have actually gone up by about 23 cents. Uh, So substantially less than the dollar price increase that we're seeing now uh, from Netflix on the core tier, the $2 price increase that we're seeing on the premium tier that includes 4K streaming. Uh, So yes, costs are going up, but not by nearly as much as revenue. So again, this is about margin expansion of Netflix and uh, that's the right way to understand this and that's why frankly the stock price is up by a couple of percentage points today uh, because investors are cheering that they don't see much downside there will be some downside in terms of increased churn in the fourth quarter but probably won't be substantial and Netflix learned its lesson from last time around pulling off the band-aid quickly getting this all over and done within a single quarter is the smart way to go. Number two Bloomberg has a piece about Amazon moving further up the logistics value chain, uh, specifically in regard to third-party sellers on the platform. Uh, And really what Amazon's doing here is taking control of the delivery from third-party seller warehouses and facilities to end customers. At the moment, the way this works is If a third-party seller is doing distribution themselves, they control that, and Amazon has no control over it. The seller can decide which distributors, which logistics service, so UPS, FedEx, or whatever they want to use, and so on and so forth. Amazon's now taking that over. It doesn't mean they're going to be providing that all themselves. They certainly don't have the capabilities and infrastructure to do all of that themselves today. But they will have control over it, which means they get to leverage their massive bulk discounts and everything else that they have, and lower the cost of shipping and so on, which is a key priority for them at the moment. So FedEx and UPS stocks took a bit of a hit today. That's understandable, given that this is seen as something of a threat to them. But as I say, in the short term, there's no immediate direct threat to them. This is more part of Amazon's broader goal of increasing uh, its presence in, in uh, directly in logistics. Number three, uh, Harman Carden and Microsoft announced way back in, I think, December last year that uh, a speaker by Harman Kardon would we'll be coming to market powered by uh, Cortana as a competitor to Amazon's Alexa uh, Echo speakers. Um, th- we've been waiting months and months and uh, got little bits and pieces of details here and there. Earlier today uh, on Microsoft Store, a listing appeared for that speaker at $200 and it said that the date uh, was October 22nd, so becoming just under three weeks from now. Uh, I understand that listing's now been taken down from the site, but no particular reason to believe that any of those details were wrong. It seems likely it just was posted a little too early before an official announcement was made. That, that $200 price point is interesting because it's obviously higher than uh, both the Echo and the Home. The core Echo now priced at $100. The Home priced at $130 from Google. Both those companies obviously having mini versions as well, the Dot and the, the uh, Google Home Mini. This is priced more expensively than those at the same price, incidentally, as the Sonos speaker announced yesterday. Um, and that's reflective of the fact that if you're not one of these ecosystem companies, you have to make money on the hardware itself. Harman Kardon fundamentally an audio company and they have to monetize the audio. They can't monetize uh, e-commerce, they can't monetize advertising and so on. So it's priced higher. It includes free calling through Skype, but only for six months. And then after that, you'll actually have to pay the regular Skype rates for outbound calling. So lots of ways it's going to be less competitive than the other products already out there. Cortana, of course, already a much less widely deployed uh, voice assistant in the voice speaker market, basically non-existent in that market today, non-existent on mobile, essentially. Uh, So an uphill battle here for this speaker and anything else that comes out powered by Cortana. Number four, speaking of Microsoft, uh, at Build earlier this year, its developer conference, one of the big themes was that Microsoft would be pushing an ecosystem approach that married uh, deep integration and first-party Windows-based platforms with integration in mobile platforms through software and services and that was a nice vision that's basically uh, pushing a neutrality and interoperability message at a time when both apple and google want you to be all in on their ecosystems with apple that means being all in on their hardware with google that means being all in on their services microsoft as I say pushing a vision that sort of marries different hardware and software and services and has Microsoft connectivity in the back end. As I say, it's a nice vision, but the reality was it's going to be very hard to implement. And so today we actually saw two moves in that direction, finally from Microsoft and actually moving forward on that vision. The first of which was the launch of the Microsoft Edge browser, which uh, exists in Windows but hasn't been on mobile so far. That'll be launching on iOS and Android. And then secondly, an Android launcher, uh, which basically takes over the home screen and various other sort of OS-level features when installed on Android in a way that's impossible to do on iOS. And so these, both these integrations will allow uh, some uh, passing information back and forth, triggering of actions back and forth between a Windows PC and a mobile device running these services. And so it's a first implementation of some of that connective tissue and the new ecosystem approach from Microsoft. Early days, this isn't that substantial, especially on iOS. It's very non-integrated, uh, but interesting first steps in executing on that vision from Microsoft. Number five, uh, Instagram has started offering cross-posting of stories to Facebook as an option in its app. Facebook stories have really not been a success in any measurable way. They're really something of a ghost town and haven't taken off nearly as much as Instagram's version of stories has. Uh, And the key reason is Instagram tends to be a more intimate environment where you deliberately choose who you engage with, perhaps share with a, a closer group of followers, might well be private Uh, to a smaller number of people and so on. Facebook continues to be this weird mishmash of people you actually know and love and people that you used to know. So people you went to school with or college with or past work colleagues or perhaps neighbors. And so the the need to share sort of personal things like photos and so on with them is, is a lot less. People feel a lot less comfortable doing that. That's why the Facebook stories hasn't taken off. So this integration with Instagram where you can create a story on Instagram and then cross post it automatically to Facebook is a good idea on Facebook's part to reduce the friction and for some users who like to share with a broad audience in both places it will be a great thing and it should in- increase usage of the service but ultimately it doesn't fix that fundamental problem that Facebook is a very broad form of sharing where people are not going to be as comfortable sharing this kind of stuff the advantage of Instagram like Snapchat is you share with a much smaller group of people typically that's what makes it work. Number 6 Google has announced it's adding a couple of filters for website owners who run ads from Google uh, on their sites to block, uh, on the one hand, sort of spammy, low-rent kind of ads that you see all over the web, and then on the other hand, to block racy uh, ads. So in both cases, machine learning will be used to detect ads that fall into those categories and to exclude them from the sites of companies that have chosen to exclude them. They they don't break Google's policies, Um, they're not... Uh, Bad in that sense, they just might not be the kinds of ads that some advertisers want to have appearing on their sites. And that's a good thing. It's it's a great way to add additional control for people who are using Google advertising platforms. And it's really the flip side of the changes Google made earlier this year, where they allowed advertisers to decide against which content uh, their ads would appear. This is now about uh, content owners deciding which ads get to appear against their content. So now going both ways with this, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, In a world of automated advertising, basically price-driven placement, uh, giving both sides more control makes a ton of sense. Number seven, interesting financials about Uber in London, specifically Europe more broadly from Bloomberg. Uh, They dug out these official filings uh, from from Europe and the UK specifically. Uh, The official revenue for Uber London was around $50 million in revenue last year. That doesn't sound very big, but it's important that basically the money for all of Uber's European operations get funneled through the European headquarters. And so it seems to be some subset of revenue that actually gets allocated to, say, the London business. Uh, it seems to exclude, for example, commissions paid to drivers. So this is a fraction of the gross revenue that Uber earned uh, in London. It's a marginally profitable business, not very profitable. Only grew by about 60% last year, whereas the European business as a whole more than tripled last year. So London's business... Very much more slowly than Europe as a whole, reflecting the relative maturity of those businesses. Uh, That doesn't sound like a lot, and therefore you might be tempted to say, well, being banned in London wouldn't be the end of the world, but of course there's strategic importance to being present in a capital city, especially one as cosmopolitan and international as London is. Number eight, another story about Facebook. Uh, It's testing, providing some additional context around articles in the news feed. Essentially there'll be a little lowercase i in a circle, which is a button that appears... Over the image associated with an article. And if you click on that, it will give you a brief summary from Wikipedia of the publication, some related articles, and then a map showing where that article is being either read or shared. Um, It's good additional detail. This is a sort of complement to the more robust but far less frequently used fact checking stuff that Facebook's doing with Snopes and others, um, which appears on very few articles and usually takes a couple of days to show up. This would be more automated and therefore. Uh, will be more widespread, assuming that it sticks with the test and actually rolls it out widely. The big downside is it's just a little eye, and it's the same presentation on every article, whether or not Facebook's algorithms might be able to detect or whether or not users have flagged that piece as being, say, fake news. And so uh, for people who are credulous and generally inclined to believe what they read, which is who fake news is largely targeted at, the little eye is going to make a ton of difference. So it's an interesting step. It's a good good way to broaden the reach of some of Facebook's existing initiatives in this area. It doesn't really feel like it's going to solve the fundamental problem, though. Number nine, story from the LA Times about uh, live TV viewing during the broadcast fall premiere week uh, over the last week or so major US broadcast networks have debuted their new shows or new seasons of existing shows. Uh, And across the board, ratings are down for live viewing year on year again. And it's a very predictable trend at this point that viewing is shifting to non-live versions of those same shows. So DVR and people skipping ads or to streaming on Hulu and other digital platforms where uh, viewing isn't measured in the same ways by companies like Nielsen. Uh, But it's also, of course, shifting to completely different platforms like Netflix, uh, where the the content is entirely different. Uh, So, again, predictable trends at this point as advertisers and TV companies get together and increasingly recognize and then allow for the monetization of that non-live viewing of that same programming some of this will be mitigated but the overall impact still significant on legacy TV companies which will continue to see uh, pressure on their overall ad revenues which is likely to start shrinking in the next couple of years. And then lastly, number 10, story from Variety about YouTube licensing some of its YouTube Red original content to third parties as a way to generate additional revenue. There's a pretty unusual strategy for original content. Typically, the whole point of original content is you keep it to yourself as an exclusive. And you monetize by making it attractive for people to subscribe to your paid service. Certainly, YouTube has been doing that with YouTube Red. The reality is it has relatively few subscribers. It's not in many countries around the world. And so licensing to a third party, which can show the content on TV, uh, for example, in the US, or can uh, go to other services overseas, uh, is a way to generate additional revenue streams. And so it makes a lot of sense for YouTube, even if it's a strategy that's very hard to see, say, Netflix employing in future. Um, But a sign, again, of uh, YouTube's original content investment being quite different in nature from some of the other big platforms out there. So that's the last of the 10 items I wrote about for subscribers on the site today. As usual, links to my pieces and then the original sources for each of those will be in the show notes uh, for this episode. Five items quickly to round up for you at the end, including some sort of deeper dive reads here. Wall Street Journal has an interesting piece about uh, cameras and how chip makers and uh, people who write software are making more and more out of the capabilities of cameras, allowing them to see in much more meaningful ways rather than just take pictures uh, and deploy interesting new technologies off the back of that. And clearly in the news this week, and over the last few weeks with you know, Apple's new facial recognition cameras, for example, the, the clever work done in Google's software to make use of its single cameras for portrait mode and so on. So interesting read there. Secondly, Axios has a good roundup of some of the work that Facebook is doing to fight back against all the criticism over, fa- over the Russian ad buying and everything associated with that um there's obviously the public statements they've made they've taken out ads in newspapers but they've also been doing a lot of behind the scenes lobbying and that kind of stuff in dc so interesting sort of roundup of the stuff that's going on there thirdly business insider has a piece about jp morgan's marketing head talking about amazon as an ad power to rival facebook and google uh, i've been kind of talking about this for a while now i'm increasingly convinced amazon has the best shot of being the number three uh, player in this market outside of china uh, and so interesting read here that sort of goes along with my own feelings on the topic. Fourth, the information has a piece about SoftBank, which is spending massive amounts of money on all kinds of things at the moment. And, uh, and therefore, a lot of startups kind of going after that money and saying, hey, we, we'd like an investment from SoftBank. This information piece has a deeper dive into some of the weird terms and conditions that are placed on them on the investments that SoftBank's making here and why some startups at least might want to uh, pause before chasing after that money. And then lastly, piece in the Hollywood Reporter written by uh, the head of FX, part of the Fox group, uh, John Landgraf. And it's what it calls a memo to Silicon Valley. But it's interesting thoughts from somebody who's from the legacy TV side, uh, somebody who recently made fairly strong statements about pulling content back from platforms like Netflix uh, and just kind of telling the legacy TV side story about all the current trends. So an interesting sort of perspective from him there. As usual, links to all of those in the show notes as well. That wraps up today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back with one more episode for the week tomorrow on Friday. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.